this, narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six-figure filmmakers nor professional critics. They are... Casually Critical. Hello and welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I'm your host, Daniel Carpenter. And I am James Newton, your co-host. Pretty soon here we're going to be giving spoilers for the 2005 movie Hoodwinked. Uh, But until then, we're going to give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. And if you haven't seen it yet, you should stay tuned and listen and see if it's worth watching. Mm. So Daniel, I have a confession to make. Make it. I love Hoodwinked. Mm. I love it with every fiber of my being. And guess what? I would say probably about 75% of that love is from my childhood. I've seen this movie probably 25 times in my lifetime. Wow. Uh, It is something that I just keep coming back to. Um, It's something that inspired me to become uh, an animator, a storyteller, um, it drew me in towards film. It showed me some things that I didn't know animated movies could do. And here's a big kicker, Daniel. This is something outside of my nostalgia, I think. It made me feel really smart as a little kid. Hmm. Made me feel like a detective. Because Hoodwinked is a fantasy mystery musical movie. The musical part, not so great. The fantasy and mu- mystery part, uh, Nostalgic James says is a pretty pretty good movie, but Daniel, I need you to I need you to shake me. I need you to grab me by the shoulders and shake me, because I know you have some things to say that are going to delineate from my nostalgia blindness. So, uh, just tell me about your thoughts on on Hoodwinked. I can certainly try. Yeah, um, I remember seeing Hoodwinked when I was little as well. Not nearly as much as you. I've only seen it about. Uh, two to three times, but uh, my family and I enjoyed it. It was a fun movie. Um, we were especially fans of a goat named Japheth who shows up as a small, smaller role. He has this song, which might be one of the greatest songs in the movie, as you said, yes. James. This is a musical, uh, and he's just a funny character, funny purely on who he is, not based on him trying to be funny, uh, all that stuff. It's, I don't know. I'll be honest with you, what's interesting about this movie is uh, it has the exact same plot as Knives Out. It's about a girl who's friends with a rich old person and something happens that's crime related. And so the movie is all about the detective who's a kindly man trying to figure things out. And what ends up happening is uh, the person behind it all is actually none of the initial suspects. It's someone much greater behind the scenes. And they all have to team up while going their own separate ways to try and find the criminal, both the detective and the heroine, so to speak. The and the original heroine. suspects. Yes, and the original suspects all kind of gather themselves, go on their own separate ways for a while, and then eventually converge, capture the bad guy, and all is good. That's so interesting. I, you know, shoot. 
<laughs> is that why I love Knives Out so much? I was going to say, I mean, there's, James. There's so many reasons I love Knives Out, but maybe one of them is because it is, uh, it borrows from the same framework that uh, Hoodwink was built on, which is that of a crime procedural mystery. This movie is very interesting for me, especially now that we have this podcast and we review movies and we yeah. sometimes rip them apart. And uh, I'm going to give you some ease, James, because I'm not going to rip into this movie a lot. If anything, I need you to help me, James, because you were talking about me shaking you up, which I'd be more than happy to do. But I also need you to provide some clarity for me because this movie is flawed in a lot of ways. And yet, underneath the flaws, underneath uh, some technical imperfections that are glaring, Yes. There is a really good story and a lot of wit and smarts in unexpected places. And the story doesn't try to do too much, but the little it does do, it adds so much homemade spice into scenes and characters that would otherwise be boring and stale. They add just little quirks that really help make it feel original and different and fresh. So I want to talk for you a little bit in this non-spoiler section about craft versus heart, because unlike Toy Story, where uh, the story kind of sucked me in, uh, I never really got fully sucked in because the animation was just that rough. That being said, this is a low-budget movie made by filmmakers that Asking them to match Pixar or Disney even back in 2005, thinking about my limited understanding of where 3D animation was at that point, I mean, man, I, I need to give these guys credit somehow. And some of like, even the story, the story's really good. There's some funny humor, but there are some really rough moments of dialogue. There are some moments of where the humor or maybe the delivery of the humor falls kind of flat for me. So all that being said, there are glaring flaws, and yet I can tell that there are some guys that um, had a good story to tell and just wanted to tell it. So I think this begs the question, where do I critique a movie because of their flawed execution, and where do I embrace it regardless because of the good heart behind it? Hmm. I, I have some, some thoughts about that and some stats about the movie, uh, but first okay. I want to ask you, Daniel, with your film knowledge, how much do you think it costs to hire a B-list celebrity to voice act in a movie? Oh, gosh. Yeah, this, the, I know where you're going with this because this movie is shockingly chock full of actors. Yes. How you much would it cost? I'm going to say one to two. Oh, gosh. No. This is before inflation, too. Mm. I'm going to say for this movie, it cost about 400 to 500K. Per, per actor. Celebrity. Okay. Per celebrity. Okay. So let's go down the list really quick here. We got Anne Hathaway, Patrick Warburton, Glenn Close, Jim Belushi, Belushi sorry, yeah. Anthony Anderson, David Odgen Stiers, an exhibit whom I have never heard of before. But so those are was, seven, seven actors. His name was on the front of the box of my DVD <laughs> that I own, that I have owned since 2006. Um, I don't know who he is. I don't know who exhibit is. Someone please tell me, please inform me. But the other six main actors I do recognize, um, they're pretty big. 
David Ogden Steyer's um, not as big anymore, and I believe he actually passed away recently. But mm. uh, Anne Hathaway, Glenn Close, Patrick Warburton, Jim Belushi, Anthony Anderson, all pretty pretty solid um, voice casting. So if you say 400 to 500K for these top seven actors, um, that's $3.5 million right there just to get these voice actors. And keep in mind, I don't, I, I, I'm no expert at all on hiring actors. Um, all the actors right. that I've auditioned for my movies have been student films. So our budget's different. Yeah. Most actors get their income, not just through acting, but through commercials and all that, um, appearances on interviews. Yeah. And I think that's a good guess. Cause this was 2005. And also this was a movie that was clearly known to be on a shoestring budget. So mm. let's actually be a little generous here and dock that down to three mil for the voice actors instead okay. of 3.5. The budget for this movie was $8 million. Um, In total? So, yeah, total. Wow. So, so let's, let's see what we have with $5.5 million. What do we have to do? We've got a we lot have of math do, here this episode. We have, to do, we have to do animation. We have to do marketing. Yes. We have to do soundtrack. I noticed that Ben Folds was hired to do a couple songs on this, which is Gosh. very strange because it's another subconscious reason why I probably love Ben Folds is because he was in the soundtrack for Hoodwinked. <laughs> and then soon after, over the hedge. So it's just like I can't get away from the things that this thing, this movie, has influenced me on. We need to rename this episode to "Unpacking James's Psyche: Why yeah. He Loves Certain Movies." <laughs> yeah, because this movie is pivotal for me, and I know that it has a lot of glaring issues. But you got to look at the the numbers here. If we're roughly guessing five point five million, just like left over from the voice acting. Oh man, that is that is nothing. That's pennies. Um, this was the first movie feature length film animated that was completely funded outside of a production studio. Um, mm, wow. Primarily funded by one dude whose name I don't have, but it was eventually picked up by the production company, uh, for distribution called the Weinstein company, which right. has not aged well. Um, <laughs> and never really, never really was a great thing. You know, Harvey Weinstein being in charge of distributing your movie. Uh, mm. but here we are. And we're grateful for the things that it provided for this film. Um, so, Daniel, sorry, that's a very roundabout way of saying there was a lot of elbow grease and a lot of um, strings uh, that had to be pulled here to make this movie happen. Um, and for that reason, I do have a an adult respect and appreciation for Hoodwinked. Yeah. Um, Here's my question. Because I think I'm starting to see something as we've kind of broken down the budget, as we've speculated about where the money went for that eight mil, which is still a lot of money, but it is super low budget in terms of films. I'm getting a picture in my mind, and this is complete speculation, that the guy or guys behind this movie really, really wanted to do it well. Because as far as you know, there's only really one time you get to do this. You right. Know, this they may never get to make another movie again. So and you're correct. They haven't. No. <laughs> and uh so I want to go all out. I want to hire the best actors. I want to hire Ben Folds. I want to enjoy and get as much mileage out of those eight, that 8 mil that I can. So I'm starting to wonder and see a pattern here 
if they decided we're going to go all out on the talent and just completely skimp on the animation because there are some animation things in here that I can tell and I'm not even an expert animator like there's many moments where a character will just freeze in place when they're they're not needed to have motion we yep. talked before a few episodes back that living Kubo beings, and the two strings right Kubo and the, yes thank you our Kubo and the two strings episode there's um white noise when we're not you know when I'm when I'm standing still and I'm listening to someone talk I'm not actually still my heart rate's going my I'm breathing I'm slightly shifting around and they just didn't add that into these characters and it really shows there's yeah. a lot of corners that are cut especially with the wide big sweeping shots of forests or buildings stuff like that and um it's it is one of the few it's it's a, an animated movie that has not aged well at all in terms of the visuals. It has aged very poorly. So this all brings me back to my question I asked you earlier, James, which is when we're evaluating the craft of a story versus the heart of it, I'm having a hard time figuring out, because I know that we'll have to rate this movie, I'm trying to figure out where I need to give a movie grace and where I should come down hard. Because you and I both have established that we want this podcast to be a place where people think critically about what they watch. In terms of what I've seen thematically and story-wise, I have a few complaints, but nothing major. A few nitpicks with this movie. I like this story. I think there was a lot of effort that went into making it good. And I think the humor, for the most part, lands really well. And they don't resort to cheap fart jokes or poop jokes like so many kids' movies back then and now do. So I have a lot of respect for them in that regard. I have a lot of respect for the hustle, the grind, the elbow grease, as you mentioned. And yet, the while the acting is phenomenal and the voice actors do their job and they seem to be worth that three mil investment maybe, uh, is it worth the most obvious part of an animated movie, which is the animation? And in a visual medium like film or animation, rather, is it worth skipping out on? I guess I'm asking a lot of different questions at this point. That's okay. But I, I hope you can help me out, James, with your perspective and maybe um, aid me through this existentializing. I want to point back to our casual correspondence episode mm. and uh, answering the question from, I believe it was Rue S., I think, asked about. Uh, the looks of a movie, the craft of the movie versus the writing of right. the movie. Yeah, cinematography or writing, which is more important. Yeah, right, right. And I think that that question can be answered the same way with animation, uh, which is story is king. Um, mm. And those were your words, not mine. But yes, um, I'm looking at the other movies that were made at this time. We've got um, Blue Skies, Robots, We've got DreamWorks Madagascar. We've got Disney's Chicken Little. We've got Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit. I gotta say, Curse of the Were-Rabbit's probably the best one among those. Yeah, um, oh, I love, I love Were-Rabbit. We've got Corpse Bride. Um, mm. And then Valiant, which I had forgotten about. It's about, like, messenger pigeons that fought in World War II. Wow. Super weird, never seen it. But, um, interesting concept. I'm just thinking about the animation quality of those versus this. There is a, a huge difference. This movie not only didn't age well, but it was just abysmal 
at the time even. Yeah. But here's the thing, something I have not shared. $8 million in their budget, assuming $3 million goes towards the acting. Yeah. The profit was $102 million. Wow. Uh, they really made a big profit off of this. Part of that might be because they outsourced the animation. I don't know if those workers were paid fairly. Mm. Um, I would like to think so because um, I'm under the impression that Corey Edwards is a is a Christian and a moral man, and I believe he studied at Anderson University, uh, which is about an hour and a half from where I'm sitting right now. No kidding. Um, he's also friends with our professor, Matthew Webb, a former professor. He knew him and was wow. next-door neighbors with him, actually. Oh so gosh. I just have a lot of personal connections to this film that are very indirect, but I still feel close to it mm. because of the childhood aspect too. But in spite of all those things, you have to look at the writing. You have to look at the story structure. Um, and I really think this is a genuinely entertaining movie. Whenever we step outside of the entertainment factor, there's not a ton of substance in terms of themes, in terms of emotional resonance um, in terms of a movie that makes you ask questions, that challenges you. This is not one of those movies. And yet I keep coming back to it because mm. there's really good writing. Um, there's a lot of just heart and effort put into it. Um, so an, a roundabout way of me saying the writing trumps the, the visuals. Mm. However, at the end of the day, how full is this movie? Is this a, is this a hollow film? Hmm. I think that entirely depends on your definition of hollow. This is not hollow in the same way that Minions or Minions 2 is hollow. Because those movies are hollow because they look amazing. We were talking about candy earlier. It looks appealing. It smells appealing. It smells sweet and approachable. But if you eat it and you eat a lot of it, you're going to be unhealthy. And there's going to be internal problems you have. And if yeah. all you watch is Minions and Minions 2, it's going to mess you up. So they're hollow movies. They uh, dress themselves like they have substance, but they have none. Hoodwinked is the opposite problem. It has a lot of substance, a lot of story. It has a terrible, eh, a very poorly aged and withered exterior. Yeah. Um, and even Toy Story, I would argue, has aged better. And that came out in the 20th century. Um, <laughs> so... There's that going for it. All that being said, though, I, I'm aware that my answer to Rue's question that you brought up, James, and I think that's a really good reference and callback, my point still stands. Story is king. Writing will always trump visuals unless the visuals distract so much from the writing that you're mm. not able to really let it soak in. So writing is still king, but a good movie, a good story is when visuals aid the story. Story, it's always about story, but the visuals need to aid the story. I will say there is a scene towards the end where there is a, a dance sequence. It's very rough. However, there is a line uh, from one of the characters that says something to the effect of, oh, the song was kind of catchy, but the choreography was terrible. And I went, I think they put that in there because they knew they weren't going to be able to pull it off as well as they think. Yeah. You know? And so there's stuff like that where I'm, you know, they're, they explain away the animation without necessarily always covering themselves up every single time. Mm -hmm. And so on one hand, I see a guy 
who has this genuine heart, a guy that I want to be like, honestly, yes. a guy who says, you know what? I want to raise this money and I may never get to do this again. So I'm just going to pull this off to the best of my ability. And yet for some reason, all of these celebrities where most films around this budget usually might pull off one or two. They might get and, one key or one peel. Right. One or, key, one peel, not both. <laughs> <laughs> They'll have, you know, or Bill Hader shows up briefly or JK yep. Simmons, my man. Um, or, you know, and then hiring Ben Folds on top of all that. I can't help but wonder, did this guy just want to make the best thing he could? Or did he just want to have all these celebrities? I don't know. But here's the thing. As I'm, as I'm hearing myself talk, I'm starting to speculate about the heart behind the guy of this film, not the heart of this film. I have I have a few insights into that actually. If you want to finish really? your sentence, and I can dive in. No, now now I want to know. Now I'm curious. Okay, so I did some rummaging around while I was watching the movie because I've seen it so many times. I was quoting it <laughs> while I was watching it. Oh my! Gosh. I have a sickness, my friends. My parents <laughs> know. My sister knows. I am sick. I'm a sick, twisted man. But I love this movie. Dang it! And that's why and we love you. And that's why you're on an the interview show. About Corey Edwards, and he said, "I took one look at Shrek." Uh, this is me being Corey Edwards. I took okay. one look at Shrek and I said, there's a lot of cynicism in modern children's media. Mm. How can we take that and make it something positive? And whenever you were talking about candy, Daniel, whenever you're talking about the mush that you eat sometimes because it looks tasty, this is a film that's an answer to that, that says, let's treat the audience a little bit smarter than we think that they are. Mm. Um, let's... yeah. Let's create writing that is wholesome and also witty and some little off, like some little lines here and there are for the adults, but aren't about sexuality. Somehow it's a miracle. Yeah, wow. That's no true. sex jokes in this movie for the adults. I, I love what you said about this guy. I want to be him too, because mm. I do think that he looked at movies because he, he was living in Hollywood at that time. I don't know if he still is, but he saw the success of Shrek and he said, let's do that, but let's. Let's respect our audience a little bit more here. Yeah. And I do, I do enjoy Shrek. It has a special place in my heart too, but yeah, I feel like yeah. Shrek doesn't love me. So I mentioned towards the end of our casual correspondence, I was talking about how, you know, one of the privileges of getting to have this show, especially with you, James, is I get to learn more about you. I get to learn more about me and I get to learn more about how people perceive and process film. And I've noticed that one of the things about myself is the more hyped people are for a movie, the more guarded I am towards it. Because mm. I don't want to so cavalierly throw myself at a movie when it hasn't done anything to earn that. I want it to earn me. I want to fall in love with it normally. It's kind of like, oh gosh, I, pff, I don't know if this is going to work. But it's like if some of my friends came up to me with a girl and said, hey, you should marry her. And I'm like, uh, you can't tell me what to do. And they're like, no, you'd be perfect. Just go for it. I'm like, N stop. No, no. But if no one forces me and it's a natural thing, then I'm a lot more open to it. So that's my relationship with movies in a nutshell. I remember I felt that way about Hunger Games, even though I had already read the books. <laughs> then the first movie came out. My dad, that movie, if you remember, for those of you that have watched it, it has a lot of handheld camera movements. So I was very nauseous by the end of it. Um, but everyone loved it. And I was very guarded. But I've also learned something else about me. 
and that is, um, and I haven't talked to th- with you about this yet, James, but what I've learned <laughs> is uh, how much fun really means to me and how little of it I experience in the movies I watch. Most movies are not genuinely fun. You know that feeling as a kid? I'm sure we've all had it at one point or another. It could have been anything. could have been a puddle. could have been a big Disneyland vacation. could have been mm. um, going to the movies. could have been any of those things. could have been something else. could have been something even smaller than that. We've all had moments where we just lose ourselves in the fun. Pure bliss. We're not guarded. We're not cautious. We just give ourselves over to the fun. And I think as adults... I've seen some of my peers do these with parties, concerts. They try and give themselves into the fun. The problem is with all the messaging, with all of the uh, recently the politicalization of so much of what we consume, it's harder and harder to do that. And so when we were going into this review, I was a little guarded because I know that you are really a big fan of this movie, James. And so I was even so... I was thinking, okay, well, I know I like this movie as a kid, but let's see. And, you know, to your point, James, if I can describe this movie in a nutshell, it is just genuine yeah, and earnest and fun. Every single piece of art has an agenda, but this particular art never feels propagandic. It never feels like it uses shorthand laziness to try and sway you over into a certain political idea and one of the agendas if your research is any indication is fun it's the same thing and i admire the heck out of that i really do so if you're okay with me transitioning james out of five stars what would you rate this film i'm gonna give hoodwinked a four out of five all that hype for four stars. I love this movie, but it has problems. I've never given it more than a four. I, a four is always a category for me that I keep coming back to. Yeah. In spite of its flaws. Hmm. And that is the definition of Hoodwinked. It's the epitome of a four out of five in my mind. That's fair. I, man. My feelings will not be hurt, Daniel. You can say whatever you want. Gosh. Um. I, was, I came into this review and I wanted to give it a 3.5, but after hearing what you've had to say about the creator and kind of processing with you about art versus heart, uh, I'm going to go ahead and bump mine up to a four. Yay! <laughs> Bravo. And I'm not doing it to copy I'm glad I could win you over. I'm not, I'm, I'm not <laughs> copying James, you guys. It's like, <laughs> Daniel and James are always the same. Well, it's not true, actually. It's, it's very much not true. Um, some of our more recent episodes have actually had our biggest score discrepancies in the history of the show. But, but hey, our severance episode, we got a match. Oh, we and did. it was quite the match indeed. It was a legendary match. Yes, guys, severance made history on Casually Critical. If you want to know exactly what we're talking about, please go give that episode a listen. It just dropped last week, uh, and it was really fun to, for once in our lives, actually spend so much time praising something instead of just ripping it apart so all that being said you guys let's wander deep into the woods and get into spoilers want to join the conversation 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast to get the inside scoop on future episodes. Feel free to message us on either platform to join in the casual correspondence or provide feedback on the show. Now it's time to dive into our spoiler review. So Daniel, Hmm. you know how in every animated movie there's this annoying little side character that's always (laughs) obnoxious and being a turd and you just want to punch it in the face? Yeah. They made that thing the villain in this movie. Oh, yeah. And I think that's just the funniest thing. Yeah. And I hadn't even thought about it until today. (laughs) But it makes me feel so good just thinking about all those annoying side characters put into this one guy who is genuinely evil. (laughs) I've thought about our Sea Beast review. I've thought about Moana. I've thought about this movie. I think the only good ways you can make entertaining, cute side characters are two ways. Number one, make hype up their dumbness. Like they're so cute, but that's literally all there is. There's nothing behind there. It's a thin veil. Like Hey Hey from Moana, like Blue from the Sea Beast, just staring at you vacantly, licking its chops, and that's it. And you realize, oh, there's (laughs) nothing going on behind that. Like what you see (laughs) is literally what you get. Is fun. There's no light on in the attic. Right. And then there's the opposite direction, which is you lean into the maniacal intellect of, oh, they're definitely not what they seem. What you see is far from what they are. And uh, and this movie just leans into that and then dials that up to 10. And it helps that uh, the gentleman who plays Boingo, Andy Dick, is uh, really hams it up. And I'll be honest with you, James, the last time I knew of a villain that really hammed himself up was Ian McDiarmid playing Emperor, Emperor Palpatine in Star Wars, the prequels, and even oh, Return yeah. of the Jedi a little bit. Um, it's something that movies just don't do well. I'm looking at you, Rise of Skywalker. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's like we're afraid to get cheesy. It's like we're afraid to, to get a little wacky with our villains, just have them go all out. You know, So many people I talk to, when I'm like, who would you want to play in a movie? Most people just say the villain. Because villains are so darn fun. They're powerful. Yeah. They're in charge. And they know it. And uh, Andy does such a good job. And it, Boingo is ridiculous. Some of the animation choices, some of the acting choices <laughs> are so out of left field. But one thing you can't deny is they must have had a ball with him in the voice recording studio. And that comes across in this movie. I'm pretty sure Andy Dick was a stand-up comedian or still is. I'm not sure, but I feel like I've heard him in stand-up routines before. Really? And uh, I was once again rummaging through trivia, and um, the line where he's like, darn it, Keith, change your name. (laughs) Um, Apparently that was improvised in the voice booth, and they kept it because they loved it so much. Oh, my Um, gosh. Which is just, that just. Oh, here (laughs) comes Keith. (laughs) (laughs) Boris, change it to Boris. (laughs) That just is indicative of, to me of how much fun they were having while they were making this movie. And I just, I can't get over it. I feel like the villain is, is such a good reflection of this movie. It's a tongue-in-cheek interpretation of fairy tales. Mm. Just, just bringing it down to a more, you know, corporate American level. He's all about, he's all about um, you know, corporate espionage and, and expanding and, <laughs> you know, putting weird hormones in his food to make people like it more. It's just so... So capitalism. That being said, kids' movies have this capitalism bad theme throughout all of them. Yeah. And I'm not here to debate if capitalism is bad. It definitely has flaws like every ideology. But the way kids' movies do it is stupid and dumbed down 
and it's the same thing. Oh, yeah. uh, character work in Solus Corporation, bad boss, lots of work, feels stressed, tries climbing ladder, discovers new world, realizes life more than just work all day. Daddy, will you finally come to my baseball game? Sure thing, kiddo, because the magic dragon told me to. <laughs> and I'm not going to be a lawyer anymore. Sure. I'll go to the... Oh, my phone's going off. I'm sorry. I I've got to take this. No, <laughs> I'll still come. I, I promise. Then he doesn't come. And then later, after the, the game... The kid knows it, too. The kid sadly <laughs> walks away and is like, Oh, this is just like Dad. Take a shot every single time the main character has his arc complete when he throws his phone into a lake. Or just off a ravine. <laughs> Or runs off to fly a kite. See Mary Poppins. <laughs> Seize the day! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this... They're just... Like I said, they do so many tried things. But they add so much freshness to it. It doesn't feel that way. Until you think about it and go, Oh, they've done what a lot of other kids' movies have done. They just do it better. You know? Yep. That's hard to do. It's hard to do it consistently. Um, the story structure in this, which... Uh, we didn't get to talk about it in a non-spoiler review, but the all four characters, the four threads, are equally interesting. You know, uh, the lumberjack has this outrageous story, but they also put a lot more effort into that because he has the least personal stakes in what's going on. He's an innocent yeah. guy that got caught in a crossfire, but his failed acting career, his desire <laughs> to sing... They take the big softy and do it in a different way. It's not like, oh, I don't want to hurt the little birdie. It's like, no, he slaughters a forest, okay? But <laughs> So he's not soft in that uh, sense. The shot of the family of porcupines, <laughs> the mom just like ushering her kids away as he's like, pulse, bunion, cream, <laughs> just like chopping down trees. It's just, it gets me. Right. It gets me. I don't um, know. Granny with her hammer space of dynamite and uh, rope <laughs> and all these different assortments. Here's the thing. Also, really quick, speaking of tried things that are actually done really well, Granny and Red are both strong, independent female characters. Uh, they don't talk about men. Red doesn't have a plot line where she falls in love with a the guy. There's none of that stuff because she don't need no man. They both this know is 2005. Yeah. They know martial arts. They kick butt, both of them, in various scenes. They can do no wrong, and yet they do wrong. Red actually goes up against Boingo in a martial art fight and loses. And I went, oh my gosh. They did, in 2005, what Marvel can't even do in 2022. If anything, I'd argue Marvel's done it worse over the years. And yep. guess what? That scene at the very end where uh, Nikki Flippers is recruits them into the HEA, which I will say probably one of the most unnecessary scenes in the movie because i thought oh they're referencing marvel stinger with uh with uh shield and nick fury and iron man here's the thing iron man didn't come out for another three years yeah. did this inspire the mcu it inspired the crossover <laughs> genre um i like that scene daniel for one reason talk to me he offers, he offers, Nikki Flippers offers things to all of the characters that fulfills their arcs. Ah, right. Um, while still being together. So, like, especially Red, you know, her, her emotional core is, I just want to be far away. I'm a whimsical Disney princess. Yeah. Um, but um, she doesn't really have time in her defense to explore her character. Right. So, yeah. Eh. But she gets to go to faraway places now. It's a happy ending for her. True. 
Um, Granny is fully authentic with her granddaughter now, and now she can be a crazy snowboarding granny. She can be her real herself. She can live her truth and go extreme boarding and blow up mountains and cause avalanches. Live live your truth, stand in your truth, blow up mountains, um, and uh, get tattoos, triple G. uh, (laughs) Get tats, uh, do cage fighting, whatever she does. Uh, But this is something I thought you were going to say, Daniel, when you're talking about tropes. The cool grandma. Yeah. I feel like this is the best execution of the cool grandma that we've seen in an animated movie. Because they're like, let's take cool grandma and jack her up to 11 again. Like, let's just go all in. If we're going to do the cool grandma thing, we got to go all in. She's got tats. She's got friends that she talks to like, whoa, 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 what's up? (laughs) Oh, shizzle. Yeah, she's, you're right. It is tropey, but it works. Red is tropey, angsty teen girl, but there's a reason for it. And with, with Granny, her flaw is that everyone that's closest to her thinks she's a frail Granny. And she's deliberately been drawing a boundary between her secret life and her normal life. And it hurts her. Because Red walks away. Here's the thing, though. They don't linger on that too long because bigger fish to fry. Red gets kidnapped, and then her life's in danger, and Grady makes up for it by saving her. And it's through that choice, because, again, characters are defined by the choices they make, and we need active protagonists. Granny chooses to run after Red and do whatever it takes to save her. And Red sees that. And so there's never a moment where Red goes, thank you for saving me, but I'm still mad at you. Red goes, you saved me anyway. And that's something that regardless of your double life, that's the one through line. And so I still love you for that. And it's just an understanding. It's not even what the writers do in this is not particularly nuanced. It's not particularly genius level, big IQ. Ooh, I'm going to have one person go forward in time, one person go back in time and do a temporal pincer movement. It's none of that. <laughs> it's it's literally just, hey, let's just tell some good stories and have good characters. And in everything I do, breathe as much freshness into all these tropes as I can. And it works. There's so many other tropey things about this movie, but they do them all with their unique twist. I would argue, although James, with your animation knowledge, uh, I want you to verify this is true. I think Twitchy pioneered the idea of a caffeinated side character who becomes more powerful when they get more hyper. I think you're absolutely right. I think Over the Hedge distinctly plucked this from Hoodwink yeah. and said, oh, <laughs> this nobody movie that only five million people saw, uh, let's take that and just steal the crazy squirrel character. Now, I know Over the Hedge is based on a comic series, but the coffee really? jazz thing was definitely not. Yes. Interesting. Based on a comic strip, uh, like a newspaper strip. Huh. But um, yeah, I, I do think you're right. I think that this is the first movie that did that, <laughs> um, which which you got to give respect for, you know, for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm not really going to linger on this because honestly, you brought this up in our non-spoiler, but um. There was a lot in the humor here that reminded me of Shrek. But it is interesting because you're absolutely right. There really isn't cynicism beyond, like, when we, when we arrive in what's it called, the forest area, um, where they're all trying to figure stuff out, the world's already falling apart. Not because it's the world and it's crappy, but just because it's one bandit guy 
who's stealing all the goodies. Right. That's it. And the cynicism in this movie, if there is any, it revolves specifically around that. There's a narrative reason. Whereas Shrek, it's more like, well, society sucks. You know, I'm being treated as, uh, I'm maligned as an ogre. And the wolf in this, in Hoodwinked, is racially profiled. Yes, which... <laughs> and it's, oh, I love it. It's so funny. Uh, which makes sense. Yeah. Given that the big bad wolf is a negative character in all the fairy tale stories. <laughs> He's the big bad wolf. And yet he is the most rational, sane character in this cast. I don't know. It's Patrick Warburton. Uh, he's great. He's great uh, as this deadpan com- comedic delivery. Did you hear the line, Daniel, when they fall deeper into the river where he gets out of the water and he says, why couldn't I have been a film critic? <laughs> I, I, did. <laughs> I did. I felt so seen. <laughs> as a journalist maybe that was the writers and animators just expressing their frustration with animating everything and trying to meet deadlines like why couldn't i have been a film critic why can't i just lampoon art instead of having to make it right as i yeah. as i've been writing my own stuff my own scripts for my own projects i'm realizing it's like giving birth truthfully it's long it's painful and it takes so much of you um oh yeah it is it is hard to make art. How about uh, we we did touch on this a little bit earlier, but the the stuff between Granny and and Red being mm. kind of the emotional core of the yeah. film that kind of took place in Act Two. Do you feel like that was too little, too late for us to be emotionally invested in the film? I feel like we rate things a lot on the emotional investment in the in the characters and the yeah. motivations. I think what they do is actually quite interesting. Because the emotional core doesn't seem to revolve around red. I think the writers thought the emotional core is just kind of red. You know, you might think the emotional core is red wanting to go to another place and get far away from where she currently is, but that isn't really reinforced throughout. And I completely forgot that was a motivation of hers until I rewatched the film for this review. Mm. So uh, it's weak. I would say the emotional core at first is more in the perspective of the police, Nikki Flippers, that sort of oh, thing. Yeah. He, he narrates, he introduces us, he steps into the film as kind of the unexpected protagonist. He's the one trying to lead the investigations, put the pieces together. But then, not that this film loses its emotional core, but the f- emotional focus shifts. Because mm. when we learn about Granny and her insane life, that comes as a surprise to us at the same time, it comes as a surprise to Red <laughs> because we're learning all about these new characters. Red, we're familiar with, and she is the least surprising when it's like, oh, she's not the bandit. It's like, well, we already knew that, or we could yeah. guess at that. So the filmmakers know that she is the least surprising in terms of her nuance, and so they introduce her first, and we have her perspective first. And out of her perspective comes all these other spinoffs that reference her own story including Japheth, the minecart, her own adventure, all that stuff. So when we learn about Granny, who they save for last, it's a surprise because we figure, oh, she's the least surprising, except for the fact that she was tied up randomly in her closet. Right. And that moment between her and Red as a plot device physically separates Red from the group. 
causes her to sneak in, learn about Boingo, confront him, get her butt kicked. And at the same time, it's also a reminder to us that, oh, we're not just listening to stories of the past. These are also affecting the characters in real life as they're learning more about this new information. Yeah. Because if you think about it, it's kind of anticlimactic. Oh, we learn about four plots. Oh, they're interesting. But then, oh, so no one's the bad guy. And there's this brief moment of awkwardness where it's like, oh, so there's no bad guy. And this is just before the reveal, the denouement, so to speak, of uh, Nikki Flippers kind of unpacking it for us. But in that awkward moment, they fill that in with more emotional meaning. The one down point in the movie where there's not a lot of new information in a very information-heavy movie, we spend it alone with the characters. They lower the scale of their world back down to just Granny and Red, a technique that you and I, I think, are coming to appreciate more and more, and they do that skillfully here. So there is skill in this story. Uh, Daniel, a very impressive part also to mention the uh, (laughs) emotional moment uh, is whenever the song says Red is Blue, uh, it's blue everywhere. Yeah. Did you know that? And she's like blue, like her emotion is like, yeah. you know. And she she's not wearing blue. the red coat anymore. <laughs> I am ticked off because that cover of Red is Blue I have tried to find for my music library and I still have not found it. I looked on Spotify because I wanted to listen to the whole soundtrack over and over and over <laughs> again. And it's all been blacklisted. Oh. Um, it still exists. You can view it as an album. You can view the titles. Uh, Red is Blue is the one that's done by Ben Folds. And I was right. like, I want to listen to this forever. Um, but <laughs> they were like, Spotify is like, no, it's been struck. So I bet it's on SoundCloud somewhere. But uh, or, you know, yo, ho, yo, ho. A pirate life for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, one other thing I wanted to say about um, the delinear storytelling and the different pers- points of view that I really enjoyed that made me feel smart as a kid. Hmm. Um. Yeah, tell me more about that. The little bits of Boingo, you know, sprinkled throughout. We get these micro expressions of him. Yeah. You know, we get to see these small little details of like, huh, there's something up with this guy. Daniel, I wanted to ask you because you've seen this movie less. Do you feel like it's too heavy handed, the little bits of Boingo sprinkled throughout? Or do you feel like it's just like, oh, yeah, he's he's just there. He's helping out. What do you mean by heavy handed? Do you mean like it calls a lot of attention to itself? Yeah. Feel like it's easy to out him as the goody bandit or it's hard for me to say I remember watching this movie keep in mind I was littler and so my brain capacity wasn't as big as even yours it sounds like because this movie <laughs> didn't make me feel smart this movie just made me feel like ooh, fun movie and then I had a brain <laughs> then I thought more critically about what I consumed <laughs> but going into this movie again for the review <laughs> then I had a brain then I had a brain <laughs> there it is a thought <laughs> I have consciousness. (laughs) I had a hard time discerning that same thing, James, because I knew the twist already coming in. And so I, there's one moment that isn't quite so subtle with the woodsman where he's like, you know, it'd be interesting if some guy showed up with all the goodies and then everyone had to work for that little guy, you know? And I'm like, all right, you know, that's a little bit, but I will say even if you guess it's Boingo, you still don't quite know the point and you don't quite know what motivated it and you don't mm-hmm. quite know the extent of it. You don't know. You may not guess on your first viewing that the European people are working for him directly. Right. You know, so <laughs> it 
it's still enjoyable even if you know what's going to happen and I knew what was going to happen. It's one of the few yeah. details from the story I did remember. And so that wasn't a surprise to me, but I was looking for that and I was looking for the execution. It could have been better, but honestly, I don't know how else to go about it. You want a good mystery shows you all the pieces in plain sight. You just don't always put them together. Knives yeah. Out does this really well with its attention to detail. But in a family movie made for kids, although written for adults, but kid-friendly, uh, I don't know if they could have been more subtle with it. I mean, probably. Yeah. But that would have alienated some of the kids and maybe made you not feel big brain, you know? Exactly, yeah. And the reason I felt so big brain, Daniel, is because my family loves the pr the police procedurals and the, ah. the mystery drama shows. And so every time... Like, I just couldn't figure it out. But this time I felt like I actually earned it. You know, mm. like I actually you figured, figured it, it out, out beforehand. Yeah. I was like, oh, wow. Like, I'm smart. I have a brain. Um, <laughs> one final fun little and note. That's why James likes watching movies that make him think. Because the biggest yep. brained movie of all was Hoodwinked. And that's how James it began. origin stories. That's what this episode <laughs> should be titled. But uh, I really there's one technical thing that I really appreciated which is um, red story versus the wolf story. There's mm. a significant amount of lighting changes um, between the two of them deliberately to make red feel like she was threatened and make um, the wolf feel like he's a reasonable guy, you know, like yeah. whenever you see it from his point of view um, and he approaches her in the woods, the lighting is clear. It's sunny. Uh, but from her perspective, she's standing in this ray of sunlight uh, while he's like lurking in the shadows, like, What's a little girl like you doing out here in the woods? <laughs> That's my Patrick Warburton. Um, so uh, I don't know. I I really appreciated those small changes, and I wish they could have doubled down on those some more. Uh, just like really leaning on their warped perspectives, um, mm. I think would have made this even more enjoyable. Yeah. So they do that a few times with Granny, which is really smart. Just. Even the absurd things tie in. They do such a good job tying all the stories together. Like Granny back, use the hood, Red. Use the hood. Here's the thing that's brilliant. You would not have guessed that on your first viewing of like, oh yeah, that's actually Granny. You just say, oh, Red's hallucinating because she's in a weird, trippy, minecart thing. Yeah. And so they use the cinematic language to make you not really suspect that's actually Granny until her story. Right. Because you're like, there's and the no same way with Granny's knitting needles versus ski poles, you know, right. the phone call. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's good. It's brilliant. And even the small details, and this is what triggered it for me, uh, you mentioning the wolf, this growling noise. You're like, okay, well, the wolf's <laughs> nice, but what about this? And then you realize, oh, no, he was just really hungry. Or, you know, like all these things that just fit so neatly together. And I love that. They don't and they're try... also silly, too. You know, yeah. they never take themselves seriously, which I really respect. Right. Yeah, pretty good. I will say there's only one moment where they don't take themselves super seriously, and I wish they had a little bit more, just a little bit more. And that's the scene when Red confronts Granny inside of the house, and you see Exhibit, whoever he is, and <laughs> the other police Chief officers. Or whatever. Yeah, and they interject a few times about how awkward it is that Red and Granny are having such an open and emotional conversation in front of them. And then they have one line where it's like, uh, we should be going, and then they leave. And I'm like, okay, that's the only thing they should have kept. All the other lines, it, it just felt like they kept stopping the momentum a little bit. 
from yeah. going full force. That's my only critique. But again, like this is a nitpick. Okay. I thought of you when that moment happened. I was like, Daniel's oh, yeah. not gonna like that. <laughs> you know, Kung Fu Panda Three. We harped on this quite a bit. Um, yeah, the, Kung the Fu Panda Three destroying dramatic momentum. And as I mentioned in our Kung Fu Panda Three review, that one scene, which I'm not gonna spoil, where it was so good and it makes me cry, and then Erd, hard stop hard stop was something that doesn't even follow the rules of the world with this scene with hoodwinked it at least makes sense in the context of the world and it doesn't linger for too long and the real emotional stuff happens right after it so for those reasons it's a very very small nitpick and it doesn't bother me as much that's good yeah that's great well daniel thank you for thank you for cradling my feelings like a a (laughs) tiny robin's egg I didn't, uh, it's not like I was inauthentic in this review. I I don't, I don't hate this movie. I think it was good. good. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. And any of you who are still listening, um, come back, come back and watch this movie sometime. It's not available on streaming, but there are alternate, um, there are alternate means of, of acquiring. Uh, also you can mail me or send, send me a text if you know me and say, Hey, could you mail that copy of Hoodwinked? Or you could buy it on Amazon probably for three bucks for an old DVD. But, um, but go revisit it and and let me know what you think. Let both of us know because um yeah, I need more eyes. I need to get my nostalgia ripped out. Um Daniel has provided some good reassurance here and has treated me very well. <laughs> However, I want to know what you think from a uh, from a subjective point of view if this is a good movie or not. So. Exactly. Exactly. Sweet tea and cookies. That's all the time we've got for today. We're Daniel and James, and you've been listening to our podcast, Casually Critical. If you're having a hard time listening to us on your little air buds, then what you can do to cut out some of the ambient noise is use the hood. (laughs) 